Michael. I serve here as uh, the pastor. And as Paul mentioned, uh, we're in, an I think, a pretty awesome series walking through the story of Jonah. Uh, today is uh, chapter 3. Uh, this is actually week 4 of Jonah. And um, I reiterated this uh, every week, but I'll say it again. The heart, the desire, the aim of uh, walking through this, I think, incredible story of Jonah uh, is that our testimony of God would just be increasing. Uh, we entitled this series, Jonah, This Is Our God, in hopes that as we walk through the story and interact with God, uh, our testimony of this is our God is just going to be increasing and increasing in, in the weeks and months and years to come. So uh, actually two weeks from today, just to plant this seed uh, again, uh, you'll actually have the opportunity to kind of share your testimony. Uh, next week will be our last week in Jonah. It will be Jonah chapter 4. Uh, and then we're going to conclude uh, the entire Jonah series uh, not with a message, uh, but more with testimonies. Um, I firmly believe, I, I feel like I'm hearing from you guys as well, uh, God's doing some awesome things. And so uh, two Sundays from now, I think it's the 24th, Sunday, uh, June 24th, uh, we're going to do some worship uh, through song, uh, and then we're going to do some worship by hearing some testimonies. So please be praying and kind of thinking about what God might want you to share because uh, I, I promise you what you share in your testimony will actually be used by God to inspire, to bless, to encourage uh, someone else. So it's not a testimony of, you know, hey, when I was two years old, this happened, and then when I was three, this happened. It's just a testimony of, this is what I learned about God this past week. This is a testimony of what I've been learning about God over the past three weeks or this past month. Uh, so be praying about that, be thinking about that. Again, the heart is a testimony that is increasing of this is our God. Let me pray, and uh, we've got some great things to walk through in Jonah chapter 3. Uh, so, Father God, thank you uh, so much for being a, a gracious God, kind and loving, as we were just singing about. Uh, God, thank you for all the, all the men and all the women uh, that are here today. Uh, God, I believe with all my heart that you've brought them here intentionally uh, to be here on this very Sunday uh, to interact uh, with you, to hear from you. Uh, so God, would you please, uh, would you please just open our eyes uh, to see you, open our ears to hear you. Uh, God, help our minds just to even understand uh, the things that you would have to say to us in this place. Uh, God, for those that just need uh, some encouragement, uh, God, would you bring an encouraging word uh, through your word. Uh, God, for those who just need to be challenged, uh, God, through Jonah chapter 3 and the story, um, God, would you please, uh, would you, would you please challenge uh, God, I thank you that you know us, you love us, and uh, would you be gracious to speak to us in this place today. We pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so where we last left off uh, was in Jonah uh, chapter 2, and uh, it's Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 said this, uh, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, this verse for me personally took on new meaning this past week. Uh, my entire family fell to this stomach virus that was, I won't even give you the details, but it was just horrific. Uh, it went kid by kid by kid, and then my Kyla, my wife got it, and by Wednesday, I was like, okay, it looks like I'm in the clear, and uh, I was not in the clear at all because around like 3 o'clock, my head was in a toilet, and I was literally praying, God, if you want to take me now, I'm totally okay. <laughs> with you just taking me to be with you. It was, the vomiting was so nasty, and I started thinking about, huh, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So I'm guessing my predicament was not nearly as, um, 
uh, challenging as Jonah's was. But we start in Jonah chapter 3, uh, verse 1 and 2. And as I've gone through the past few weeks, I'm going to read a few verses and then highlight these are the things that we learn about God uh, in this story of Jonah. Uh, so verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. You remember chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He ran, was disobedient, but God's brought him back. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Now, it might not seem like we'd learn a ton, but I'm going to highlight specifically three things that we learn about who is God just from these uh, two short verses. And number one would simply be this. I encourage you to write this down. God does not hold grudges. God does not hold grudges. Another way maybe to, to say that or think about it, he does not count our sins against us. I want you to notice in, in really this first verse what is missing or what God doesn't do. There's no word of rebuke or there's no reminder to Jonah of his recent running or his past failings or God doesn't start off to Jonah and say, you know, I'm, I know Jonah, I'm probably going to totally regret this uh, because of what you've just done, but I got no other options, so let me try this one more time with you. There's no hint of that. God doesn't say that at all. Now, I want you to think for a minute, and I don't mean to bring up a painful memory, but is there anyone in your life, maybe currently or, you know, in the recent past, where they just held a grudge against you? Now, they didn't come out against and come and say to you, I'm holding a grudge against you, but every time you're around them, you, you just felt it. Every time you were around them, they either somehow subtly reminded you of something you've done or didn't do or something that you've said or, or some sin that they just won't let go. They won't forgive. And it's just painful to be around them because they do. They, they, they're just holding on to a grudge. Now, that's obviously painful. Now, I'm sure if you're honest, like me, I've been on both sides. I've had people hold grudges against me and I've unfortunately have done the same thing to other people. It's painful. And when someone's holding a grudge against me, I don't know how it works for you, but I don't want to be around that person. There's no joy in that relationship. It's, I actually find myself growing in bitterness towards them that they just won't let it go. Now, can you imagine if it was like that with God? Can you imagine if God actually held grudges against you? Can you imagine if God was constantly, always reminding you of when you sinned, of when you ran, of when you disappointed, of when you fell short, of something you did or, or something you didn't do. Can you imagine if it, life with God was just like that? He was a God who just constantly reminded you of your failures. Well, similar to how we do with people, it's a good chance you'd probably begin to avoid God, and maybe your heart would even grow in bitterness towards God because you're just tired of always being reminded of the things you have done or haven't done. Now, clearly with Jonah, God didn't do that. And what I see in, in God with Jonah and what I've seen in my own life is God is not a God who holds grudges at all. He doesn't remind me of my past sins. And I think what Jonah is actually experiencing afresh um, is something that King David actually wrote in one of his psalms, in Psalm uh, 103. King David said this, 
as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression or our sins from us. East and west, they don't meet. It's another way of saying God has completely removed, forgotten. He doesn't hold our sin against us. I just want you to sit with that for a second. That is amazing. God's not like us. He doesn't hold grudges. Now, this is clearly not to say that God is casual or indifferent or just excuses sin. That's not the case at all. God takes sin very seriously, but what God does is he counts man's sin towards his son. And his son, Jesus, is our Savior. And Actually, the Apostle Paul says it like this in Corinthians. God made him, being Jesus, who had no sin. He was perfect, no transgressions had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, if you're a Christian, and you've placed your faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees his son, and he sees righteousness. That means he doesn't see us as sinners. There's nothing to hold against us, because in Christ, he counted it against Jesus. Now, it's one thing to know this truth, but I can only encourage you that allow this truth to really radically shape how you think about God and how you interact with God. Because I know that God does not hold grudges, that God does not remind me of my sin, that actually spurs me on to go to God, to draw near to God, not to run, but to stay close, because I don't have a a fear that somehow God is going to dig up some past sin and remind me of it and be like, hey, Davis, you remember when you did that? He doesn't do that. God does not hold grudges. Second truth uh, about God that we learn in Jonah 3, uh, verse 1 and 2, is God does not make deals with you to accommodate you. God does not make deals with you to accommodate you. Um, Again, God could have said something like this to Jonah. Uh, Jonah, I know what I gave you the first time around. It would have been a huge undertaking. So let me make things a little bit easier for you this time around. Maybe instead of going to Nineveh, let's just send them a note. Let's just send them a letter. And then maybe we'll see how you do with that one and want to make it easier for you this time. Then maybe we'll actually have you, you know, deliver another note to them and and we'll see how things are going. God does not make deals with Jonah, with us, to accommodate us. And what I love about that is God does not back down from his mission or the purpose that he has. See, I believe God's got a purpose for all of us. And God does not back down from accomplishing his purpose in us, with us, and through us. Now, this might be hard for some to hear, maybe even some to believe, but God is not really interested in your your comfort. God is not really interested in your testimony being, well, my life is really easy. Life with God is uncomfortable. It's often inconvenient. Why? Well, because God is wanting us to accomplish, God is wanting to accomplish in us his incredible purpose. And that's not always easy. That's not always convenient. If you are ultimately looking for a life of ease and convenience, as it were, Well, there are plenty of ships headed towards Tarshish. And ultimately, that's what Jonah was doing. He wanted to avoid what God had for him. 
But God doesn't hold grudges, and God doesn't make deals with us just to accommodate us so we're comfortable, and it's easy, and it's convenient. Now, I don't know about you. I really desire for you. I desire this for me. I desire this for our church. I really want to have a testimony. Uh, and I feel our, our testimony is growing. And I want our testimony to, it's not going to, we're not going to hit the ceiling on this. It's just going to keep growing and growing. And it's a simple testimony of, I'm seeing the hand of God at work in my life, around my life, through my life. I see the activity of God everywhere. Like, I don't want to live on old stories of what I saw God do 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. I want to live in the freshness of all that God has for us, me personally, for you personally, and then us collectively as a church. I don't know if you're looking for a good book uh, to read this summer, uh, a book that really inspired, informed, shaped me years back. It was a great book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. It was a book written by a, a young pastor at the time. His name was Jim Simbla, and he, plant, he felt God call him, say, I want you to plant a church in Brooklyn. If you've ever been to Brooklyn, it's a pretty, uh, there's parts of Brooklyn where he's at. It's a pretty tough area. And as he's writing this book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, uh, this is what uh, Jim Simbla said. I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mighty on our behalf. That really grips my heart, and I hope at some level it does you as well, that your life would not slip by without having a testimony, not of like 20 years ago, but of yesterday, and what God's going to do with you this week, and what God's going to do with you next month, and what God's going to do with us as a church, that we are seeing and living in the middle of the activity of God. And what I love, what God, what I learn about God in, in these few verses is He's not going to make deals with me just to accommodate so things are easy. He will accomplish his purpose and his plan in my life. Third thing that I learn about God in uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, uh, is simply this. God doesn't give up on you. I initially had written that down or written that down to say, you know, God's a God of second chances, uh, which is, um, I'm not going to debate you on that one, but it's not sufficient. It's more, I think, truthful to say, God doesn't give up on you. Now, God clearly could have bailed on Jonah when Jonah ran from God and said, fine, Jonah, if, if you're done with me, I'm done with you. But what I see in Jonah chapter 3 is that God wasn't done with Jonah. God did not leave Jonah. God did not give up on Jonah. And I really want you to hear this. He doesn't give up on you. I've met a lot of people who just believe that because of certain things, certain sins, certain that they've been ignored or counted out by God. And that's just a lie. God does not give up on you. And I see again that God does not give up on Jonah. Now, a question I wanted to ask is, but why does God give Jonah a second chance? Why does God even bother to give Jonah a second chance? As you're kind of pondering that, let me throw another question on top of that. If God knew that Jonah was going to run, which he did, uh, then why did he even bother to send Jonah in the first place? And how you answer that question will actually inform how you answer the first question of why give Jonah a second chance. 
So if he knew he was going to run, if he knew he was going to sin, if he knew he was going to fail, what's the point? Why did you even ask him to do it? Well, it's not because God was like, you know, Jesus, Holy Spirit, uh, we're totally out of people. I got no one else to go for me to Nineveh, so I guess we're stuck with this guy. Let's, let's send Jonah. It wasn't because God needed Jonah that he was sending Jonah to Nineveh. What was going on was Jonah needed God. God had some great things to accomplish in the city of Nineveh, which we're going to read about here in a second. But the greater work that is happening is Jonah needed God. Now, Jonah probably wouldn't have testified that what his greatest need was, his need was for God, bless you. But what I see God doing is, Jonah, you don't know it, but your greatest need right now is for me. And I wrote it down like this. Uh, what was helpful for me to kind of think about it, Jonah needed more, what Jonah needed more than anything was to see the God that he had told so many about. I think Jonah had told, he was a prophet, right? He told many people about God. But I think what God was trying to do with this man, this runaway prophet, was, Jonah, I want you to see. I want you to see who I am and what I can do. I want you to see my mighty hand at work in a mighty city known as Nineveh. So there was work to be accomplished in Nineveh, but there was an even greater work to be accomplished in the life of Jonah. Three truths. God does not hold grudges. God does not make deals to accommodate. And number three, God doesn't give up on you. We're going to look at just two more truths, but as I turn from that, just pause. And as I was writing some of these things down, it's, I'm, my testimony of God, I just feel, is so fresh and it's just growing. I just want you to hear those words. God doesn't hold a grudge against you. He doesn't. He's not looking at you holding anything against you. He's not point and pointing your sin because he sees Christ in you. That's if you've placed your faith in Christ. He's not looking to make a deal with you. He wants to accomplish great things through you. And then the third one, he doesn't bail on you. He doesn't quit on you. He doesn't tap out on you. You might have done that to him, but he has not done that to you. Now, Jonah is experiencing these things in God afresh. And what I love is it's time for Nineveh to meet this God uh, that Jonah has been experiencing. So this is Jonah chapter 3. Uh, read two verses. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming. God said he'd give him a message, and this was the message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I love Jonah's making some progress. As we're going to find out next week, far from perfect, but he's making progress. Because when God came the first time, he ran in disobedience, but now he's walking in obedience. So he's making progress. Uh, but in these few verses, we learn some more details uh, about the message God gave him. And it's pretty interesting. It's, uh, I'm sure some of you might appreciate this once in a while for me, but this was an eight-word sermon. Eight words. And actually, in the Hebrew language, it's only five. So we added some words to help the translation or understand in our language the translation. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be 
overthrown. And this is the message that Jonah, I think, he went and just said these eight words. I don't think he was adding anything to the message. I think he was walking from parts of the city to different parts of the city and proclaiming this message 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I haven't done this yet, but I wanted to give you some context of Nineveh. I wanted you to understand uh, what's about to happen in Nineveh. I wanted you to get a picture of who the people of Nineveh were. We've already known from Jonah chapter 1 that they were evil and they were wickedness because their wickedness had come up before God. Uh, and we also know from Jonah that this was a violent people. I wanted to I did a lot of reading uh, this past week of looking at the Assyrian Empire and uh, specifically this uh, capital city, which uh, was Nineveh. Uh, and there's actually a lot of uh, history. There's been a lot of archaeological digs that have discovered a lot of information about the Assyrian Empire, specifically the city uh, of Nineveh. And the reputation of the Ninevites, again, capital city of Assyria, is that they were an incredibly wicked and violent people. The reputation was for brutality and for arrogance. Uh, this is from a journal uh, uh, called the Mesopotamian, The Mighty Kings. And it, talks, it walks through the different chronicles of the kings of the Mesopotamian, uh, of the Assyrian Empire. Now, give you a little date. Uh, roughly, the, uh, the Assyrian Empire, they had about a 300-year reign. Uh, so they were really in power, in control, uh, around the 11th century B.C., and then they had another stretch uh, where they were really dominant in the 8th, 7th, and 6th century B.C. And this is right when Jonah in the 7th century would be commanded to go to Nineveh. And this is from a 7th century king uh, in Nineveh. He says this, I caused great, this is from the Chronicles um, of Nineveh, I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors and impaled them on stakes before their cities. And then speaking specifically about uh, certain battles, many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive from, from some I cut off their hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many. I burnt their young men and women to death. This is a picture of the king of the Assyrian Empire and capital city here of Nineveh. In a different... Um, a journal was entitled The Grizzly Assyrian Record of Torture and Death. This was known as the most violent empire. It is, a, it, it is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Records brag of live dismemberment, often leaving one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. They made parades of heads, requiring friends of the deceased to carry them elevated on poles. They boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with ropes so they could be skinned alive. The human skins were then displayed on city walls and on poles. They commissioned pictures of their post-battle tortures where piles of hands, feet, and heads impaled on poles ate to a stake were displayed. They pulled out the tongues and testicles of live victims and burned their young alive. How do you feel about Nineveh now? I wanted to give you a picture of, Scripture says wicked, evil, violent. But as you dig a little bit deeper and do some 
some historical reading on who are these people? Who was this empire? Who was this city? Now we're going to read when these people... Now, this is a violent community, a violent city led by a violent king. And the message they've just heard, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You think their first response will be like, bring it on. We're Ninevites. We're not afraid of anyone. We destroy, demolish anyone. This is their response. Chapter uh, 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the king. The king. This is the same king from a line of kings who were just known for their evil, for their horrific torture of people. And the king gives this edict. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let, excuse me, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Let them give up their evil ways. He recognized we are a violent people. And I love verse 9, his question, who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The one who had caused the death of, I don't even, countless numbers of people. And by the way, if you're wondering why Jonah had such a hard time going to the city, it's because this city, this empire, was so abusive, destructive to the nation of Israel. And I want you to think, if you would, of a person right now in your life. I want you to think of someone who you really consider them and you're like, there is no way that they would ever come to believe in God. They're just so hard towards God, so indifferent towards God. Their lifestyle is so directly opposed to God. There is absolutely no way. I mean, there could be a handwritten note from Jesus himself in the sky written in his own blood with their name on it, and they'd be like, yeah, that's seen it before. I'm not believing. Like, they could see it all, but yet this would be the person that would still refuse to believe. Now, I want you to think of who that person might be in your life. Now, multiply it 120,000 times over, and that's who lives in the city of Nineveh. And in verse 5, it states it best when it says, the Ninevites, these people, totally opposed to the things of God, these Ninevites believed God, all of them, from the least to the greatest, from all of the little kids in the kingdom, all the way up to the king of the kingdom. And I love that their belief in God had an immediate impact. It had an immediate result. A fast was declared. Now, the message was, if you remember, it's, it's only eight words long, 40 days. Like, you're going to be overthrown. 40 days. So a fast is declared, presumably, for 40 days. And not just for people, but for animals as well. No animal, 
No person is going to eat for the next 40 days. And when you see people fasting in, in, in uh, biblical literature, it's usually a way of seeking the mercy of God. You see the people put on sackcloth, on the animals as well. Anytime you see sackcloth in Scripture, it's a sign of repentance. It says, everyone was instructed, call urgently on God. Fast, wear sackcloth, call urgently on God. That was the way of the king to say, the whole nation, the whole city, let us pray with urgency to God. And then the king himself says, uh, everyone was instructed to repent of their evil and violence. You notice what's missing in, in what they, the Ninevites did not do. They did a lot of good things, but you know what's missing? Is there was no argument from the king of Nineveh. You don't see any argument from the people. There was no conversation of, who are you to tell us this? We haven't done wrong. We can do whatever we want, however we want. There was no argument from this city. They heard the word of God and they believed, not the word of Jonah, they believed this is God speaking to us. And the king, all the way down from the people, they recognized rather quickly, we're going to have to give an account to God. I have no idea what the king of Nineveh believed. They were also known for uh, an incredible amount of, of worship to idols, uh, incredible monuments set up in, in Nineveh, uh, worshiping false gods. So he had some belief about God, but yet when the word of God comes to him and comes to his city, he knew enough to say, who knows, maybe, just maybe, God will yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now before I read uh, the last verse in chapter, uh, chapter 3, what would you do if it was up to you? Now knowing what you know about Nineveh, now knowing what you know of how evil they were, how destructive and violent and grotesque they were, what would you do? They've just received a message that they're going to be overthrown. But now there seems to be some humility. There seems to be some repentance. There seems to be some prayer. There seems to be a cry for mercy. What would you do? Would you give it if it was up to you? Now, I think if we're relatively honest, <laughs> I think some of us, if not maybe a lot of us, would say, Heck no, absolutely not. The people who knew nothing of mercy, never granted mercy to anyone, were just absolutely horrific, grotesque in their dealings with people, skinning people, burning people. You want me to give them and grant them mercy? Well, you don't have to raise your hand if you would be the one to vote for no mercy. But... This is where I, I guess I'm reminded and, and thankful that God is nothing like us. I'm thankful that God is not like me. And no offense, but I'm thankful he is not like you. This is what God does in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, the two final things that I wanted to share with you as it relates to what do we learn about God 
uh, in chapter 3 of Jonah. I've already shared three, and the last two uh, stems from uh, this one verse. And the fourth thing would be simply this. God's judgment is real, but God is merciful. God's judgment is a very real thing. But the God who judges is merciful. This really felt, I guess, afresh on me this past week as I was sitting with this, of the picture in my mind. One day, uh, all of us, not just me, all of us are going to have to stand before a righteous, a holy, a perfect God and have to give an account for how we lived. This is what was happening with the Ninevites. They were being called to give an account. And what their deeds had deserved was to be overthrown, to be literally destroyed. So God is a God who judges, but God is merciful. Now the question as I was considering, we all have to give an account. There are going to be some people who stand before God and try to plead for mercy on the basis of what they've done, on a life well lived, on, on good deeds performed, on, I don't know, good works. But that wouldn't be mercy. If God were to pay us according to what we've done, well, that's a wage. And the wage of what we deserve is separation from God. We deserve his judgment because we've rebelled, we've sinned just like Nineveh, rebellious people, and we've done the same thing. But then, what I want you to really hear and I want you to catch in number four about God is merciful, is God has already provided a way for us to receive his mercy so that when I stand before God and give an account, I'm not trying to stand before God and, and flex my spiritual muscles and say, God, were you impressed with this? Were you, I, I did this and I said this and I shared that and I gave that. No, I will literally, on bended knee, I receive Jesus. I receive the mercy that you provided for me. And again, I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth saying again. It's, God doesn't just excuse sin. God literally takes my sin, your sin, the sin of all these Ninevites, and literally placed not only his sin on Christ, but also placed his wrath on Christ. So that those who look... To Christ, everything's been paid. Sin has been paid. Wrath has been paid. I like how John Piper actually said it. He said, God is not content to leave, a, leave all people under his wrath, the Ninevites, us. Nor can he simply sweep sin under the rug of the universe and act like it didn't happen. Therefore, his love and his justice conspire to make a way for sinners to be saved and God's justice to be vindicated. The answer is in the death of Jesus Christ. If you want the mercy of God, it's not going to be received by doing something for God. It's going to be in receiving the mercy that God has provided for us in Christ. So this is a pretty big question, an important question. Have you received God's mercy? Because you will have to give an account. That's not a threat. That's just, that's the reality. We are his creation, and we will stand before our creator. Have you received his mercy? Because he is a God who is just judge, 
but He is a God who is merciful. The fifth thing that I see and learn in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10 is this. God's grace is for everybody and not beyond reaching anybody. Who on earth would have thought that God's grace would have extended to the most wicked, evil nation in the Assyrian nation? A violent people. Who would have thought that God's grace would have gone to them? Jonah didn't want it to go, but God's grace went to them. I am actually blessed, encouraged to know that God's grace is not just for some, but God's grace is for all. Even that person that you might be thinking of, like not them, there's no way that it would be for them because they've just done too much. If that's you, the reason you're thinking about that, thinking about them that way, is because you're stuck in a, a performance mindset. And the thing that frees us from that is just grace. God's grace is for everybody and n- not beyond reaching anybody. Those are five things uh, that we learn about uh, God from Jonah chapter 3. He doesn't hold grudges. It means he doesn't counter sin against us. He does not make deals uh, to accommodate. He wants to accomplish his purpose in us, through us, with us. He does not give up on us. There's not one person here could ever tell me that God's given up on you. Even if you've given up on him, even if you've ran, God will not give up on you. God is just judge, but he's merciful. And then what we just looked at is just grace is for everybody. No one is beyond his grace. Now, before we close and spend some time in in prayer and spend some time just in worship uh, through song and celebration of communion, one last question for you. If this is true, if, and this is not the exhaustive list, this is just from Jonah chapter 3. Imagine all we learn in all 66 chapters of the Bible. Just five amazing truths we learn about God from 10 short verses. If all of these are true, then what does that mean? Like, how do I live my life in light of what I've just now learned, my a testimony that's now growing of who God is? How do I live my life in accordance with these truths? I'm just going to give you a few. And these are more just application. So I'm not going to take a lot of time to explain them. I want you just to kind of sit with them and then consider, well, what do I do with this? Number one is simply this. Begin doing for your Jonah what God has done for you. We've all got people in our life who have hurt, who have let us down, who have disappointed us, who have sinned against us. Do for them what God's done for you. And it's not just Jonah. It's begin doing for other people the very thing that God has done for you. God has not held a grudge against you, so let's not be people who do that. Let's not be people who accuse and hold people's sin over them. We're the ones that are quick to forgive. We're the ones that are not pointing the finger and living with grudges over people. Why? Because... Our God has not done that to us. So how dare we do that to anyone else? So number one would simply just be this. Begin doing for others what God has so clearly done for us. 
He's been gracious. Be gracious. He's been merciful. Be merciful. He's not given up on you, so don't give up on that person that continues to give you reason after reason to give up on them. Do for others what God's doing for you. Number two would simply be this. Steward the mission and the message of God with faithfulness and urgency. I don't know exactly what God would be telling you today, but whatever he's telling you, be a good steward of that. Be faithful with that. Because it very well might be to go from here and to make a phone call to encourage someone, to seek someone's forgiveness, to pursue someone just to let them know you love them. It might happen sometime on Tuesday or Wednesday. You really feel like God's telling you to do something. Be a good steward of what God is, is telling you to do. And in doing so, you will have a testimony of seeing God at work. Eight words. 120,000 people believe God. That's amazing. Wouldn't you love to have a testimony of, you know, I just I sent a, a simple text. It was a simple email, but I felt God wanted me to do this, and I did it. Be a good steward of the mission, the message that God would entrust or has entrusted to you. And lastly, uh, this one would simply be uh, just practice gratitude that is Godward. As I was just looking at my notes and sitting with this this week, um, I was just really uh, overwhelmed with a sense of thankfulness. I don't know what happened in Nineveh. Jonah 4, as we'll get into next week, doesn't focus on uh, exactly the, uh, what the Ninevites did when they, they heard that God had relented. But I can only imagine there was a celebration. I can only imagine there was food being eaten. The sackcloth had been removed. Prayers of petition turned into prayers of praise. I can only imagine there was an incredible amount of gratitude that was Godward. That was not focused on Jonah. I don't think anyone praised the king. I don't think anyone was praising anyone else. I think people had praise, gratitude that was just Godward. And a simple way to think about that is, you and I are the people that often quickly say thank you to God. Not just once a week when we celebrate communion, when we come to church, but we're just constantly having gratitude towards God for who He is, for what He's done. You and I have so much to thank God for, if nothing else, that God demonstrated His mercy towards me, towards you. Begin doing for others what God's done for you. Steward the mission and message well. And just practice gratitude that is Godward. We'll spend some time uh, praying. And uh, a worship team will come up. And as you're ready, uh, come celebrate communion. And I usually don't instruct you on what to do or what to say when you come up to, to receive communion. Uh, but today, I just wanted to encourage you. You might already do this, but if you don't, as you take the bread and as you take the wine, say thank you. Thank you, God, for providing a way for me to receive your mercy that was not based on my performance, good deeds, or works, or effort. But thank you that you provided a way for me to receive your mercy 
by faith in your Son. So it's a simple prayer that says, Jesus, thank you for doing for me what I never could have done for myself. God, so excited about uh, just new things I'm learning that we as a church are learning uh, about you through the story of Jonah. And God, just so blessed and so encouraged and just refreshed to know that you are not a God that holds grudges. You don't remind us of our sin. Our sin was dealt with at the cross. So God, thank you for that. God, I give thanks that you're not making deals with anyone here to accommodate so life is easy, comfortable, convenient. God, I thank you that you want to accomplish great things, that you have a plan and a purpose that you are committed to seeing through for all of us here. God, thank you that no one here could ever say that you've given up on them. God, thank you for not giving up on us. 